I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we have a thrilling topic to report. Ask Jeff is back. We ask you to send your questions about the Constitution, and you delivered. We received some great questions on Facebook, Twitter, and on our wonderful blog, Constitution Daily. These are superb topics, and there's a lot to talk about, so let's get uh, started. Our guest inquisitor is our crack web strategist, Nicandra Iannacci, who's done so much to put this wonderful podcast together over the past uh, year. Nicandro, welcome. Thank you. And what's our first question? Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, let's get started with the most popular topic, which may come as no surprise, natural-born citizenship. Uh, we received several questions on this. We've sort of uh, summed them up in this succinct question. Given the constitutional requirement that only a natural-born American qualifies for the presidency, is Senator Ted Cruz eligible? So... At the National Constitution Center, we always stress that in almost every hotly contested constitutional question, there really are good arguments on both sides, and that is the case here. Uh, if listeners want to cut to the chase, I found two of the most thoughtful arguments on both sides uh, came from uh, first Akhil Amar, great friend of the Constitution Center, who wrote on CNN Wire uh, that Ted Cruz is eligible to be president. And on the other side, there was a great article by Einar Elhaug in Salon about why Ted Cruz is not eligible to be president. So listeners can check those out. But let me try to summarize the arguments on both sides. And we begin, of course, as always, with the text. Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution says, quote, No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. All right, so Ted Cruz was born in Canada. His mother was a U.S. citizen, and his father, a Cuban national, was not. Because Ted Cruz's mother was a U.S. citizen, he became a citizen at birth uh, thanks to a federal law from 1790 that we'll talk about in a second. So the question is whether he qualifies as a natural-born American citizen um, because his citizenship stemmed from this statute rather than from him being born in the United States. Uh, the Supreme Court has never issued a definitive ruling about the term natural-born citizen, and the meaning of the phrase is unsettled among legal scholars, as I said. So a number of legal scholars have concluded that Cruz does qualify as a natural-born citizen. They believe that the phrase has a specific meaning, namely someone who was a U.S. citizen at birth with no need to go through a naturalization process at some later time. And these scholars argue that since the time of the framing, Congress has made clear that someone born to a U.S. citizen abroad is a citizen of the United States at the time of birth. Therefore, according to this argument, they're a natural-born citizen as opposed to a naturalized citizen. Jonathan Adler in The Volokh Conspiracy makes an argument along those lines. Uh, to understand the meaning of the term natural-born citizen, these scholars argue it's helpful to look at British common law and the enactments of the first Congress of the United States. Laws in force in Britain in the 1700s recognized children born outside of the British Empire to subjects of the crown were subjects themselves and used the term natural-born to encompass this category of people. And perhaps most significantly, 
The U.S. Naturalization Act of 1790 says that, quote, the children of citizens of the U.S. shall be considered natural-born citizens, provided that the right of citizenship shall not descend to persons whose fathers have never been residents in the United States. That uh, statute was subsequently amended to take out the uh, gender classification. Um, scholars on this side also cite Joseph Story's description of the purpose of this clause and his commentaries on the Constitution. Story said that the purpose was to cut off all chances for ambitious foreigners who might otherwise be intriguing for office and interpose a barrier against those corrupt interferences of a foreign government in executive elections. So the question is, can a person who is born a U.S. citizen be considered uh, a foreigner subject to these nefarious intrigues? There are are strong arguments on the other side. There are legal scholars who believe that Ted Cruz is not a natural-born citizen. They say that the common law understanding of natural-born at the time of the founding was clear, namely natural-born subjects had to be born in English territory. Uh, the only exception was for children of public officials serving abroad. The British statues that uh, scholars invoked to support Cruz were a revolutionary departure from the law. And these scholars argue that the framers adopted a common law definition, not this new British statutory approach. They also kind of look into this Naturalization Act of 1790, arguing although it contains the phrase natural born, there was no intent to infer that these citizens have to include children born abroad to American parents. And if you look at the debates over the Naturalization Act, they suggest, according to these scholars, that congressmen were aware that such children were not citizens and had to be naturalized. Therefore, Congress enacted a statute to provide for them. Also, the statute only says that the children should be considered as natural born. And James Madison, when he redrafted the law in 1795, deleted the phrase natural born, and it's never reappeared in a naturalization statute. These scholars suggest that Madison believed that children born abroad of U.S. citizens were naturally aliens rather than natural born citizens and could be naturalized by congressional statute, but should not be considered natural born. So there are good arguments on both sides. Uh, those who argue against citizenship argue that an originalist and textualist judge might be more likely to find that Cruz is not a citizen than a judge who embraces a more living constitution approach. Um, but there's one final punchline to this really interesting question. Uh, most scholars agree, I think, that if there were a dispute about this question, the Supreme Court would not and should not decide it. There's a doctrine called the political question doctrine that uh, allows uh, Congress, not the courts, to resolve disputes about uh, qualifications for elections. And for that reason, if it came to a lawsuit, the Supreme Court might be well advised to defer to Congress about whether or not President Cruz, if he were in fact elected president, could serve. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to some good constitutional analysis at the next Republican debate. That will be very exciting. It will indeed. Okay. Our next most popular topic was, probably comes as no surprise as well, the Second Amendment. Uh, again, we received several questions about it, and we have combined them into one succinct question, and that is this. Was the Second Amendment intended to protect an individual's right to bear arms? Or was it meant to allow states to keep, quote, well-regulated militias? So, ladies and gentlemen, what I want you to do now as I answer this question is go to your computers and go to the Constitution Center homepage, constitutioncenter.org. Click on the interactive Constitution that I've been so excited about ever since it launched on September 17th. And 
explore it. There's the blue button. And now let's click on the right to bear arms. And you'll see here Nelson Lund and Adam Winkler, who are two of the leading scholars in the country about the Second Amendment, nominated by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, which are our great partners on this interactive constitution, with a common statement about what the Second Amendment means. And that's why you can be completely confident when you read this common statement that every word in it is consensus history, that basically this is what everyone agrees on. And I, you can read it yourself. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to just uh, give you some excerpts. It says, implicit in the debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists about the Second Amendment were two shared assumptions. First, that the proposed new Constitution gave the federal government almost total legal authority over the army and the militia. Second, that the federal government should not have any authority at all to disarm the citizenry. They disagreed only about whether an armed populace could adequately deter federal oppression. Interestingly, Lund and Winkler don't focus on the question of whether it was an individual or collective right, I think because they uh, think that not too much hangs on that, or at least it doesn't settle the question of what kind of regulations are permissible and reasonable today. Uh, Winkler in other writings has suggested that the Second Amendment did have an individual right core at the time of the framing, but that that core grew at the time of Reconstruction when the framers of the 14th Amendment were especially concerned about African Americans who were trying to protect themselves against mob violence not being disarmed. And, and in the post-Civil War period, the right of individual self-defense became more significant. Um, but there's, uh, there's more. That's not all I always say when I'm talking about the interactive constitution. I feel like a Ginsu knife salesman. You can further decide what you think the Second Amendment means by going back to the landing page for the Interactive Constitution, which again is constitutioncenter.org backslash interactive hyphen constitution. And you'll see that little link about in, interested about the origins of the Constitution and how it relates to constitutions around the world. Learn more. I'm clicking that. This is just so cool. You can go in this writing rights interactive. We're going to click on the Second Amendment, which I'm doing now. Obviously, this would be better with some visuals, but podcasts are so much more fun than video. Um, so you got to do it at home. I'm clicking on the Second Amendment, and here in the left-hand corner, we see all of the documentary sources of the Bill of Rights that the framers relied on when they drafted the Second Amendment. So you can click among all of them and see whether they considered it to be an individual or collective right. You will find, and I'm just being descriptive here, that most of these constitutions were centrally concerned about state militias not being totally concerned, uh, or rather disarmed by standing armies. So they talked about it more like uh, a collective right of militias. Um, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, George Mason's Virginia Declaration, which was probably the most direct source for James Madison, uh, begins that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state, that standing armies in times of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination and governed by the civil power. That's uh, a fairly typical provision, which is mirrored in most of the other states. Uh, New York just has slightly different language. There is one state in particular that's a, uh, an exception, uh, and that's Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm delighted to report here in Independence, uh, on Independence Mall, right across from Independence Hall. Both the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 talked about the right to bear arms is more of an individual right. It said that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state, 
And then it went on to say, as standing armies in times of peace are dangerous to liberty, they might they ought not to be kept up. And then you can also click on the Pennsylvania Minority Statement in 1787, which was a proposed uh, series of amendments to the Constitution. And it begins that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and their own states or the United States or for the purposes of killing game. That Pennsylvania Declaration, both the majority and the minority, is the most direct expression at the time of the framing of the Second Amendment as an individual right of self-defense, not just a right of, uh, of militias not to be disarmed by federal standing armies. It's interesting that Justice Scalia, in his majority opinion in the leading Second Amendment case, uh, the Heller case, emphasized the Pennsylvania statement and said, hey, look, state constitutions talked about it as an individual right. I'm just being descriptive here. I'm not taking a position. The, the, the Pennsylvania is an anomaly. If you, if you go to this rights interactive, you'll see that the majority of the constitutions did not use this individual rights language. So then it really comes down to the question of what, um, how you want to balance uh, the state constitutions at the time of the framing, how interested you are in the post-ratification history of the 14th Amendment, whereas Winkler argues the right became more of an individual right uh, in order to answer the question. And that decision will depend on what kind of, what's your constitutional approach? Are you a textualist? Are you an originalist? Are you, uh, do you care about precedent? Do you care about tradition? Uh, do, or do you take a more natural law-based approach? Or are you a pragmatist? Those are the big methodologies of constitutional interpretation we've talked about on this podcast. And listeners, I want you to choose a methodology or, or a mix and match a series of methodologies, but be consistent. Don't just choose your methodology because it coincides with your political preferences in one case. Apply it consistently across the board. So I think that's the best answer I can give to whether uh, the Second Amendment is an individual or collective right. But for more information, it's always important to go to the interactive Constitution. And then after you've read that consensus uh, statement by Winkler and Lund, you can read their separate statements where they disagree about what kinds of regulations might be constitutional today. Great. Okay, we're gonna get a little more, uh, a little more lawyerly, a little more uh, technical, perhaps, with our next question. Uh oh. Y yeah, bear, bear with me. All right. Uh, it is about the Supreme Court's same-sex marriage decision last term, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges. The question is, why is Obergefell significant in terms of substantive? due process jurisprudence. And uh, as a relative newbie to this, Jeff, I'm wondering if you can start by defining substantive due process, giving us that context, and then sort of getting into, you know, why is Obergefell significant? Absolutely. And let's do this in as non-jargony uh, way as possible. What is, what is substantive due process? So the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, and I'm just reading it on the interactive Constitution, says, among other things, that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, that only applied to the federal government, but the 14th Amendment, which was adopted after the Civil War and turns 150 this year, also has a due process clause, and that says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So if you read those clauses, which were rooted, again, go to the interactive constitution, what was their historical root? Well, Article 39 of Magna Carta, which said that no person shall be deceased of property except by the law of the land. So the historical root of the due process clause 
is a procedural guarantee. The idea is that the king or the sovereign can't come and take away your property or, or kill you, sentence you to death without a proper trial. It's a guarantee of fair procedures before any of your basic rights of life, liberty, or property can be taken away. So just based on the text and based on the history, it seems like a procedural guarantee suggesting that people can be deprived of life or liberty or property with due process of law, that with a proper trial, you can be sentenced uh, to death. You can lose your life. Or with just compensation, uh, you can lose your property if proper procedures are followed. Um, in the, well, really 18th century, but uh, 19th century and 20th century, some courts began to say that there are some liberties that are so fundamental and so important that they can't be deprived even with due process of law, that basically um, rights of contract, economic rights, uh, the right not to be subject to monopolies, which the framers were extremely concerned about, and the right not to be the subject of what they called in the 19th century class legislation, namely property that uh, laws that took property away from A and gave them to B, that these were unconstitutional even, with they were, even, with, even if they were properly passed by legislatures or applied in a proper trial. And that's called the doctrine of substantive due process, the idea that these substantive liberties are so important that they can't be deprived even with due process. Now, this doctrine is very controversial. Um, one scholar, uh, John Hart Ely, said that the idea of substantive due process is an oxymoron, like green pastel redness or something like that. It doesn't make any sense to talk about substantive process. And the most controversial cases involving substantive due process arose originally in the, well, the, mo the most uh, infamous of all is the Dred Scott case, which we talked about on a recent podcast, which said that the property rights of Southern slave owners were so important that they couldn't be deprived by the Missouri Compromise, even though the Missouri Compromise was a duly passed law. That was the first example of substantive due process. Then there were a series of cases in the progressive era, the most famously or infamously, according to your preferences, the Lochner case uh, from 1905, which said that New York's regulations on the working hours of bakers violated the freedom of contract, which, although it doesn't appear explicitly in the Constitution, the court said was one it was a fundamental liberty, and therefore that these maximum hour laws were impermissible. Uh, and then the most recent substantive due process case that's also quite controversial is Roe versus Wade, which said that the liberty to choose uh, uh, to make repro reproductive choices early in pregnancy was so fundamental that it could not be deprived even by a duly enacted statute. Now, uh, w w what about Obergefell? Uh, Obergefell is a, is a very sweeping decision that strikes several notes. There, there's some t uh, a lot of uh, talk about equality and the idea that uh, denying uh, gays and lesbians the right to marry that's granted to straight people violates their equality. But there's also a lot of talk about liberty and dignity. And I think it would be fair to say that the dignitary talk and the liberty talk are basically substantive due process arguments. They're saying that the freedom to marry, which the court uh, early in the 19th century recognized as a substantive due process right, is so fundamental that it can't be infringed without a very good reason and that there were no very good reasons offered in this case. So what the questioner asks is the significance of the substantive due process part of the Obergefell decision going forward. 
Not too long ago, the court in a right-to-die decision called Glucksburg said, we're really kind of suspicious of substantive due process. It's, uh, they didn't say all this explicitly, but the background was it's the source of these very controversial cases, the Dred Scott decision, the Lochner decision, the Roe v. Wade. Both conservative and liberal justices over the course of the 20th century had denounced substantive due process. Justice Holmes in the Lochner case famously said, the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics, invoking this creepy social Darwinist. Uh, great line. Totally yeah. great line because of its specificity and the fact that you, even if you don't yeah. remember who Herbert Spencer was, you just think, hey, I don't want this odd book that I've never <laughs> heard of to be read into the Constitution. <laughs> right. And then uh, Justice Scalia has, uh, and, and Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito all have uh, criticized uh, substantive due process, Justice Scalia most notably when it comes to Roe v. Wade. So substantive due process was controversial. And in this Glucksburg case involving the right to die, the court in a unanimous decision by Chief Justice Rehnquist said, we're going to be very careful in reading liberties that are not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution into the Constitution. We're going to define them very narrowly. We're going to make sure that they're deeply rooted in tradition, that there's no dispute about the fact that they've been embraced and enforced for a long time. And we're going to describe them carefully because otherwise we judges would be in the business of just making up rights. Supporters of Obergefell, who hope that it will lead the court to enforce dignitary rights more generally, say Obergefell changes all that. They say the court here ex um, recognizes dignity and autonomy so expansively, even though the idea that people have the right to make fundamental decisions to define their own conception of meaning of the universe and the mystery of human life, as Justice Kennedy said uh, originally in the Casey uh, and Planned Parenthood decision upholding the court of Roe v. Wade, these scholars say basically now the court is in, is in the business of enforcing dignity and autonomy more broadly, and that could sweep much more broadly than rights that are deeply rooted in tradition. It could lead to the recognition of relatively novel rights that are not rooted in tradition. Like, for example, and here's the best example, a right to die with dignity. I think we're going to have a great National Constitution Center debate on that question in New York uh, in the spring uh, uh, with, with, our, uh, uh, with some great partners. But um, in the Glucksburg case, the court rejected the idea that there's a right to die with dignity, a right of assisted suicide. It said no such right is deeply rooted in tradition. That's too abstract. It's not uh, carefully described. If you take Obergefell seriously, you could reach the opposite conclusion and say that it's inherent in people's dignity to be able to choose when to live and when to die. Predictively, of course, it's a matter of votes, and it's right now it's up to Justice Kennedy, so he's the one who will decide how expansively to apply Obergefell in the future. That could change if the composition of the court changes. But there's no doubt, descriptively, that Obergefell represents a much more sweeping and expansive approach to substantive due process than recent cases had done. It, it seems to me, no matter what you feel about Obergefell, this is a really exciting debate, and there are very high stakes, so it'll be interesting to follow it. There are high stakes, but you know, here in my law professor mode, <laughs> again, I, I always tell students, you can pick whatever level of abstraction you find persuasive when it comes to substantive due process. You can agree with the uh, Glucksburg court that these interests should be described narrowly and carefully. You can agree with Justice Kennedy that they can be described expansively. But be consistent. Have the courage of your convictions. If you're going to recognize a broad autonomy right in Obergefell, 
uh, that allows people to make fundamental decisions about what to do with their body and not to be coerced when others are not harmed, then entertain the possibility that the Affordable Care Act health care mandate was an unconstitutional violation of autonomy rights, as the Cato Institute argued that it was. They're very consistent. They say both restrictions on sexual choice and on economic choices are unconstitutional. By contrast, if you're a conservative who is always denouncing uh, the um, Lochner and uh, Roe v. Wade for too expansively recognizing these new unenumerated rights, then be consistent and don't read new economic rights against a health care mandate. Uh, into the Constitution, at least on autonomy grounds. So always good arguments on both sides, but try to have the courage of your constitutional convictions. I bet one of our favorite guests on this podcast, Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute, would have a lot to say on this. Uh, and hopefully we're going to have him on soon. So that'll be that'll be great. Maybe that it'll be, be fun to ask him. Great. And maybe he can tweet more of those delicious uh, <laughs> j- jiggery pokery beer and waffles that he's always finding delicious foodstuffs that are connected to Justice Scalia's pronouncement. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so next. great. Totally great. Okay, because due process is so interesting, we're going to stay with it a little bit longer, but we're going to shift a bit in subject matter. Uh, We got a really interesting question from someone about uh, government regulation, and the question is this. Do the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment due process clauses, as you just described them, prohibit the government from imposing safety regulations on workers? And in this particular case, uh, the questioner suggested Can the government limit the amount of time that truck drivers can drive in one shift? It's such a great question, and it's exactly on point to the discussion we've just been having. Uh, If this were 1905, um, there'd be a decent argument that, yes, that uh, limitations on hours of work, maximum hour and minimum wage laws, in some cases, were unconstitutional. Here's the way the court in the Lochner era approached the question. It said that the state had broad police power to protect health, safety, and morals. But you had to prove that the law actually was a legitimate effort to protect, in this case, health and safety, and not a pretext for some illicit motive, namely class legislation, helping one class of uh, people. Yes, that's the <laughs> no, that was the worst thing in the 19th century, <laughs> class. You're right to right. shudder, right, shudder right. at the idea of class <laughs> legislation. So if this were an attempt by unions of truckers in this case to create cushy jobs for their workers rather than a legitimate effort to protect health and safety, then if it were 1905, the court could conceivably strike the regulation down. But it's not 1905, it's 2016, and a lot has happened since the Lochner era, in particular, the New Deal revolution. And basically, uh, very quickly what happened is those progressive area decisions were heavily criticized uh, by liberals and conservatives. Uh, none other than uh, Chief Justice William Howard Taft uh, dissented from a decision to strike down some congressional uh, health and safety uh, regulations in the Adkins case. Then Franklin Roosevelt threatened to pack the Supreme Court uh, with justices who would take it out of the horse and buggy age. And in a famous switch in time that saved nine, uh, Justice Owen Roberts, no relation to the current Chief Justice, changed his vote in all these five to four decisions, striking down economic regulations on substantive due process and other grounds, uh, were overturned. And like the guy who on the Titanic who said, I asked for ice, but this is ridiculous, um, the court, according to some, became too deferential when it came to economic regulations. There's a case called um, 
Williamson and Lee Optical, 1955, that said the day is gone when the court uses the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to strike down state laws, regulatory of business and industrial conditions because they may be unwise, improvident, or out of harmony with a particular school of thought. That was a case involving optometrists and opticians. When I teach, I always forget the uh, difference. It was the age before lens crafters. But basically, it was a complete giveaway to these optometrists who were trying to protect their monopoly on glasses against the budding precursors of lens crafters, the opticians. And you had to get a prescription if you, you know, from a doctor if you wanted to change your lenses. And the court said, well, this could be a legitimate health law because it might you know, help your eyes if you went to a doctor. In fact, it was obvious from the legislative history, this is a total giveaway to the optometrist lobby, the, the doctors who are trying to protect their monopoly against competition from the opticians. But the whole point of Williamson and Lee Optical is the court's going to bend over backward to make up fake reasons to uphold economic legislation. They're not going to actually examine whether there was protectionism going along. And as long as there's some plausible reason for upholding the law, even if it's a fake reason, they're going to uphold it. Now, all that is being contested nowadays. Lochner has its defenders. My law school classmate and friend David Bernstein of George Mason Law School, a friend of the National Constitution Center, has written an interesting book defending Lochner and saying that, uh, in fact, the idea that courts should strike down class legislation is deeply rooted in the history of the uh, 19th century and the 14th Amendment, even though it doesn't appear in the constitutional text. Uh, he says that Lochner was a legitimate effort to protect non-unionized workers, including African-American workers, against unions who are trying to look after their own members. Um, and uh, libertarians generally, like uh, National Constitution Center Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board member Randy Barnett, have said that Lochner has gotten a bum rap and basically it's fine for courts to strike down protectionist economic legislation. So is are these... A hypothetical safety laws for truck drivers constitutional. It all depends on which side of this debate you embrace. I would say it's still conventional wisdom, and a majority of the Supreme Court uh, would uphold these laws because the court has not recently been in the business of closely scrutinizing economic laws uh, as long as there's some plausible reason for upholding them. But uh, if you're a libertarian or you are a Lochnerian or you love the uh, early 19th century, you might come to a different conclusion and argue that these laws are unconstitutional. So the takeaway is when you're tucking in your children at night, warn them about class legislation. <laughs> uh, no, or warn them about the brooding omnipresence of Lochner. <laughs> you, can, you can either frighten or delight your children right, with right. Lochner, and you can actually cradle them and sing them Lochnerian nursery rhymes about you know, economic protectionism. And I think that the National wow. Constitution Center really would support that and maybe even hold a, a contest of, about the best pro or anti Lochner nursery rhyme. Wow. And frankly, it would be I could easily see you doing that. That would be. Well, only if you if you came along, I think that would be, <laughs> you know, Nicandro uh, was in a singing group in college. So I think he's going to have to actually launch Don't the, put the, me on the, the winner of yeah. this great new ballad. OK, enough of this. <laughs> yes. Enough of my nonsense. Um Turning to one of your favorite amendments, Jeff, the Fourth Amendment, we have a question about license plate tracking. And the question is this. Do license plate trackers at border crossings constitute unreasonable searches or seizures in violation of the Fourth Amendment? 
Wonderful. Well, of course, here at the Nonpartisan National Constitution Center, I'm not allowed to have a favorite amendment, but you know, oh, but I can sorry. confess. But you're you're right that I've <laughs> secretly shared with you my my fondness for the Fourth Amendment because it's just so central to the Constitution. John Adams said that the what sparked the American Revolution was the protest against the writs of assistance and general warrants that the Fourth Amendment was designed to prohibit. So it's definitely a top amendment. Let's just call it that. So great question. Do license plate trackers at borders constitute unreasonable searches and seizures? The first thing to say is that borders are different. Generally, different Fourth Amendment rules apply at the border. The court, the Supreme Court has distinguished between the legal standards for searches conducted within the country and those at borders and said uh, in the Ramsey case, travelers may be stopped in crossing an international boundary because of national self-protection. Uh, those lawfully within the country have a right to free passage without interruption or search. So basically much lower standards uh, for the Fourth Amendment at borders. The, the, the doctrinal takeaway is for a really intrusive search, like a body cavity search, you may need a, some degree of suspicion, like reasonable suspicion. Um, but for something less intrusive, uh, uh, something far less, including no suspicion at all, is permissible. So another question is, are license plate trackers searches at all. Um, the court has said that you have little expectation of privacy in public against photographs that merely take snapshots of you, and therefore it's arguable that license plate trackers, um, at least a single snapshot, might not raise Fourth Amendment issues. But things become different when the data is aggregated. And there's a huge and important debate in this country right now about how much ubiquitous surveillance is consistent with the Fourth Amendment. In the Jones case involving GPS tracking, uh, the Supreme Court, at least five justices in different ways, said that month-long surveillance that uh, followed a suspect from door to door in public for an entire month by putting a GPS device on the bottom of his car was unconstitutional. Um, Justice Sonia the case was unanimous, in fact. Five, five justices said the problem was that there was physical trespass when they stuck the device on the bottom of his car. Four justices said, even without physical trespass, a really extensive search that reveals a lot about you might violate the Fourth Amendment because we do have an expectation of privacy in the whole of our movements for a month. And Justice Sotomayor wrote a very influential and important uh, concurrence saying, we have to rethink this whole notion uh, that when I surrender data to a third party for one purpose, I abandon all expectation of privacy in it for other purposes. So I could imagine an argument that license plate tracking for a month that included searches at the border and even searches across the border might raise Fourth Amendment issues under the notion that it's like the general warrants that the framers of the Fourth Amendment were determined to prohibit. It should require at least some degree of individualized suspicion before you can collect so much information about someone. Uh, but by, contra by contrast, if it's merely at the border and it's merely a snapshot of your license plate, then under current doctrine, it's okay. I do want, you know what, I, our, I love our listeners to be engaged in current constitutional debates. Here's some homework. Um, and if anyone can uh, come up with an answer, uh, the, the country will give you constitutional thanks. Justice Sotomayor called for an alternative to the third party doctrine. She said, how are we gonna protect privacy in this age when people can be tracked ubiquitously 24-7 um, without any physical trespass. Courts are struggling to come up with that alternative. I, I just on the spot announce a National Constitution Center 
contest and sweepstakes, the listener who sends in the best alternative to the third party doctrine and describes why it is a violation of the Fourth Amendment to track someone 24-7 in public for a month will receive a thrilling shout out on the uh, We the People podcast, um, uh, as well as a, uh, a, a visit to the National Constitution Center. I'm just making this up, but here we go. A, a, a <laughs> wonderful a visit to the National <laughs> Constitution Center, a great shout out, and all constitutional honors to the winner of the ubiquitous surveillance Fourth Amendment sweepstakes. Well, there's nothing people love more than homework, uh, so uh, I'm sure you'll be right all over that, listeners. Um, just a couple questions left. We are running out of time, but these are two really good ones. Um, January 30th, which uh, we're recording this on uh, Thursday, January 28th, January 30th is the 40th anniversary of Buckley versus Vallejo. Uh, this case is discussed a lot in connection with campaign finance, uh, and a listener just wants a little bit of explanation. What does Buckley say and why are we still talking about it? Oh my goodness. Well, I guess, first of all, happy birthday, Buckley, or no happy birthday, depending on <laughs> your uh, perspective. There are um, several justices, I'm not sure I can quite count five, but let's say four and a half, who may be inclined to overturn the Buckley case. So they would not be wishing a warm and hearty happy birthday. Uh, other justices are quite committed to it and would be bringing out the cake and candles. But the court of Buckley is the confusing but important distinction between campaign expenditures and campaign contributions. It's tough to keep straight, but let's try to do it, ladies and gentlemen, because this is the core of Buckley. Basically, Buckley involves a constitutional challenge to uh, a, a really important uh, campaign finance law, the Federal Election Campaign Act of 1971, with the creepy acronym FICA, and this is the first comprehensive effort by the feds to regulate campaign contributions and spending. It caps contributions and expenditures by individuals, candidates, and independent groups, and also has reporting and disclosure requirements. So it's challenged on constitutional grounds. Senator Buckley from New York, who's uh, Senator James Buckley, who went on to serve with distinction on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and is uh, uh, related to uh, William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review, challenged this on constitutional grounds. They said it violated the First Amendment, gets to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court splits the difference. It's a total Goldilocks split the baby decision. Basically, the court says that restrictions on expenditures violate the First Amendment because they necessarily reduce the quantity of expression by restricting the number of issues discussed, the depth of the exploration, and the size of the audience reached this is because virtually every mean of communicating ideas today in, in today's mass society requires the expenditure of money. So the idea is when a candidate spends money on herself or when an independent group spends money on behalf of a candidate that's not directly given to the candidate, that's core political speech and those expenditures are protected speech. By contrast, the court said contributions are different. Contributions run the risk of corruption. Um, the law's primary weapon it held against the reality or appearance of improper influence stemming from the dependence of candidates on large campaign contributions um, is troubling and, the, and there's a important or compelling interest in regulating contributions. The court said it, these regulations serve the basic government interest in safeguarding the integrity of the electoral process without directly impinging on the rights of individual citizens and candidates to engage in political debate and discussion. 
Okay, so you, you see the distinction between expenditures, which are held to be core speech, and contributions, which are held to raise the possibility of improper influence. Now, the $60,000 question, or more like the $60 million question in this case, is um, how narrowly does improper influence have to be defined? The Buckley court seemed to suggest that both corruption and the appearance of corruption that could result when candidates are very heavily dependent on funders was so troubling and corrosive to democracy that it could be legitimately regulated. But in Citizens United, uh, the Citizens United case, and in subsequent cases, the court has defined corruption much more narrowly. It's basically said you have to have something that looks like quid pro quo corruption. I'm going to give you this bag of money and you are going to vote for my oil company. That would be in a clear... Sounds good. Absolutely. <laughs> or, or if you give me this bag of money, then I'll rig the National Constitution Center Fourth Amendment sweepstakes <laughs> in your favor. That would be corrupt, and we would never do that at the National Constitution Center. Never. Ever. But that kind of corruption, if defined so narrowly, the court said, strikes down restrictions on... Uh, contributions and expenditures by independent groups, including a political action committee, because there's no evidence of quid pro quo corruption. The dissenters in Citizens United and in subsequent cases said that's far too narrow a definition of corruption. Uh, the framers themselves, according to briefs filed in cases attempting to overturn Citizens United, defined corruption more broadly as structural corruption of the representatives on donors and the appearance of corruption and the lack of confidence in the political system that results when candidates constantly have to chase money can be legitimately regulated, even if there's no evidence of the, I'll give you the money if you vote for me. But that's the big question right now. How narrowly should corruption be defined? But what's so interesting, uh, significant, uh, troubling, or fine, depending on your view of Buckley, is none of this comes from the text or history of the First Amendment. It's from the Buckley decision itself. It was the court that kind of invented this distinction between expenditures and contributions that led us down the rabbit hole of trying to define what kind of contributions were corrupting. So this is judge-made law. Um, for that reason, some justices, I'm counting about four and a half, want to overturn Buckley and allow both uh, contributions and uh, expenditures to be unlimited. There's another group of justices that think that both contributions and expenditures can be limited because there's an independent First Amendment interest in equalizing the political playing field and ensuring that the voices of the rich don't drown out the poor. That equalization theory uh, was most prominently articulated in the Austin case, which the Supreme Court overturned in cases after Citizens United. Right now, a majority of the court embraces a much more libertarian view of the First Amendment that says that the notion that you can silence the voices of some to enhance the voices of others is anathema to the First Amendment. That's the kind of libertarian vision. The more egalitarian vision says it's completely fine, and the framers, too, were concerned about this sort of democratic participation. So that's the gist of the debate. But when you think about Buckley, just remind yourself expenditures versus contributions. Expenditures can be regulated. My goodness, see, I, I, I mess it up every time I try it. So ladies and gentlemen, do better than I did. Expenditures presumably can't be regulated because they're so expressive. Contributions can be regulated if they're corrupting. And lest we appear biased towards Buckley, I should note that Citizens United also celebrated a recent birthday. It turned six on ah. January 24, uh, 21st. Wow. 
Um, well, let's do so, it. Happy birthday, hey, citizens. United. United and Buckley. <laughs> happy birthday, <laughs> citizens. United and Buckley. Happy birthday, citizens. United and or Buckley, depending on whether you like one or don't like the other. Happy birthday to you. There we go. And many more. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's wow. end with uh, a fun question. Um, something I, I think both of us have been interested in. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, kicked off the new year with an exciting proposal. He, uh, a 90 page proposal, as I recall, he, among other things, would like a, a new constitutional amendment to allow two thirds of the states to override a Supreme Court decision. The question is, does the Constitution allow that, number one? And two, what else is he proposing? Wonderful. Well, I mean, I, I don't mean wonderful uh, about his proposal. I mean, it's a wonderful question. So let's first uh, turn to the Constitution, the interactive Constitution, to read the text of Article 5, which establishes the procedures for amending uh, the Constitution. And I can summarize it, but uh, better to... Well, you know what? I'm going to summarize it. Um, basically, two-thirds of both houses of Congress or a convention called by two-thirds of the states can propose amendments, and then three-fourths of state legislatures or state conventions have to ratify them. So if the governor's proposals can survive that process, then they become part of the Constitution. Um, does, does the Constitution allow that? Uh, yes. Almost everyone thinks that a legitimately adopted constitutional amendment is constitutional. I wrote this kind of playful piece many years ago saying there could be notions of unconstitutional constitutional amendments if they violated natural law uh, that the framers thought uh, was created by God rather than government, but uh, few people buy that, so no need to uh, go down that rabbit hole. What is Governor Abbott proposing? Well, let's find out. Uh, he hasn't offered text for his nine proposed amendments, but he's described their purposes, um, and here are the provisions. With respect to Congress, the Texas proposals would first prohibit Congress from regulating activity that occurs wholly within one state. Second, it would require Congress to balance its budget. Third, it would prohibit administrative agencies from creating federal law. Fourth, it would prohibit administrative agencies from preempting state law. Preemption is the principle that when federal and state laws conflict, the former trumps or preempts the latter. Fifth, the proposals would allow a two-thirds majority of states to override a Supreme Court decision. That's not new, you know, during the progressive era. And the election of 1912 is looking more and more like the election of 2016, given the possibility of a third-party candidacy by Mayor Bloomberg, um, which parallels that of Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt proposed an amendment that sounds a lot like Governor Abbott's amendment that would have allowed um, Supreme Court decisions to be over. Ridden. And that reminds us that judge bashing is not just a conservative uh, tradition. It's very much a liberal and progressive one as well. During the progressive era, as we've been talking about, it was liberals and progressives who didn't like courts for striking down all these maximum hour and minimum wage laws. Today, conservatives uh, have turned to efforts to overturn judicial decisions, but it would indeed take a constitutional amendment. And how wonderful the symmetry of a uh, Supreme Court override decision now coming from Governor Abbott when previously it had been proposed by uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, sixth, uh, the governor would require a seven-justice supermajority vote for Supreme Court decisions that invalidate a democratically enacted law. 
uh, and the amendment would require the same three-fourths majority for ruling striking down a law, mitigating the risk that a bare majority would get the answer wrong. Um, the, the, the idea is to mirror on the Supreme Court the supermajority requirements of Article 5 to ratify a constitutional amendment. Uh, the progressives, again, toyed with proposals along those lines. Seventh, uh, the governor would restore the balance of power between the federal and state governments by limiting the former to the powers expressly delegated to it in the Constitution. That invokes, of course, the Tenth Amendment, um, which says that the powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. We just got two more, ladies and gentlemen. The Eighth would give state officials the power to sue in federal court when federal officials overstep their bounds. And finally, Governor Abbott would allow a two-thirds majority of the states to override a federal law or regulation. This is known as the repeal amendment. It was first proposed by our friend and Coalition of Freedom Advisory board member, Randy Barnett. Um, like Barnett, Abbott believes that federalism has lost important protections over time, most notably uh, the election of U.S. senators by state legislatures, which was uh, ended by the 17th Amendment and that allowing the states to repeal federal law would help restore that balance of power. So there you have it at the National Constitution Center. We, of course, take no position on the merits of state constitutional, uh, of, of proposed constitutional amendments, but we think that constitutional debate is a great thing. That's what we're all about. And we're hoping, in fact, to organize some good debates um, in the months and year ahead about whether or not uh, there should be a constitutional uh, convention to amend the Constitution. Excellent. I think we're out of time. Well, this was so much fun. Thanks to our phenomenal listeners for these excellent questions. We'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. Um, but uh, thank you so much for asking, uh, Jeff. Thanks to Nicandro again for being such a great interlocutor and for doing such a wonderful job on these podcasts. And please join us next week for the next edition of We the People. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced as well as moderated by the superb Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich, Josh Weinberg, Nicandro Iannacci, and Danielle Evans. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.